0: On. it's Whoa. always it's always it's yeah it's always weird not weird but we this is the the first time that we've recorded with uh three people in our zoom recording era era so uh yeah just uh it, and I, I don't know how to how to start things so i'm gonna i'm just gonna well, say we should, like, we should we should let everybody
1: it. know that we did like what what we never do which is we did a pre-show oh my god with our guests to, like, Explain how everything is going to work, and that's just not how we roll. Then we just jump in and we start flailing, and we didn't do that. And so I no. feel a little
0: off my game today. It's in the, if it's in the show, it's in the show. Except today, there's <laughs> some stuff that's not in the show. show. Yeah, exactly. Uh so anyway, we we just alluded to this. We we're really excited today. Uh, Don, I'm going to speak on your behalf today, too. Just right, oh, please. Now, at least, um, we're really excited to have uh, Benjamin Schrager to join us. And Be- Benjamin, we. Um, we we met Benjamin um, on the internet as we meet most of our friends uh, through Twitter. He did some really cool research related to chicken sashimi in Japan. And um, I don't know even how I got tagged into this. Somehow, someone I follow or someone, well, I don't know. I don't even like, it it actually doesn't matter. Anyway, we started interacting with with Benjamin. Uh, And purely from his Twitter bio, um, I'm gonna read it and then let him introduce himself because uh, he, he said the, there might be some updates to this. But his Twitter bio says geography of agricultural agriculture and food, trust, anxiety, chicken, heritage foods, disease, postdoctoral researcher at Kyoto University, and uh, views are his own. He him. So anyway, Benjamin, thanks for for joining us. Um, feel free to to update your, your bio tell, tell our, our food safety talk listeners a little bit more about who you are and, uh, and what you do and where, where you're at.
2: so, um, my name's Benjamin Schreger. Thanks for, for having me on the show. Looking forward to talking with you about chicken, um, Japan and some other, uh, stuff with having this kind of conversation between, uh, Critical food studies and food safety should be a lot of fun. So I guess yeah, my background. Um, I got my master's and Ph.D. from University of Hawaii um, in geography, researching about food um, and uh, and uh, big big food in Hawaii. So uh, seed corporations, and then for my that was for my master's and for my Ph.D. I researched about chicken in Japan. Um, and I researched it from a lot of different angles and um, just kind of happened across chicken sashimi based on where I was doing my research. Um, it's a regional specialty. So people were like, well, if you're a chicken researcher, then you absolutely have to eat this. Um, yeah, so then I, I after I graduated, I did a postdoc um, uh, Japanese JSPS postdoc at Kyoto University, and just this month, I started a position as an assistant professor at Tsunomia University um, in the Department of Agricultural Economics.
0: Oh well, congratulations!
1: congratulations. That, yeah, that
0: is an update. Yeah, yeah. welcome,
1: welcome to the club, uh, the club of uh, academics.
0: Yeah, it's a. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird it's a weird club uh to, for sure uh and just in, in general um but well that's that's really cool so what so so i guess um you know tell us a, a little bit more about the type of research that you aim to do in in your new position and are you um are are you teaching as well what is the you know it's you're a month into this so it's it's a little early but what is what is your you know what does it look like for you right now what's your what's your daily approach
2: yeah, um, you know I'm still trying to figure um, things out, but I will be teaching undergraduates in Japanese and Japanese, or and then grad some graduate students in English, and looking to figure out how to continue with my research during COVID, and um, maybe. Uh, how to research about local food stuff in Tochigi Prefecture. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What what, um, what classes are you uh, are you are you going to be uh, teaching?
2: Well, the so the this uh, department that I'm at really they they have a a lot of emphasis on. Um, seminars, um, these kind of smaller seminar students based on the year that students are. And it kind of builds towards an independent senior project that um, students um, and their advising professors put a lot of effort into. So that's kind of a different approach than uh, what's typical at uh, US schools.
0: Yeah. Oh that that sounds really that sounds really awesome. So you you'll be able yeah. to sort of shape those seminars based on on you know topics that are yeah. important or emerging and gives you a lot of flexibility. That's really that's awesome. Right. That sounds- and then
2: my uh the the one course for sure I'm teaching is uh uh international uh agricultural economics and management. So that's uh,
0: awesome. Yeah. So so why don't we, why don't we just jump right into like the chick, chicken sashimi discussion. Um, how, how we, and we, I think we talked about this on a previous episode of food safety talk that we'll, we'll link to, but we, um, you know, like I mentioned, we happened upon your, um, you know, your, your, some of your research. I think you, you had a, either your dissertation or a paper got published and, and we read that and, and sort of talked about it from our frame in in food safety. And one, you know, one thing that um that you know I'd love to to hear from you is kind of like, you know, why sashimi, what were your thoughts on it before starting the the research that, that you did? And and how how is looking at you know what what you what you found in the culinary world and in the supply stream within Japan, how has it changed, or how has it changed? How you see the the safety of uh, of that dish, or maybe other dishes? So there's like three questions wrapped up there. But how did why like how did you how, why why chicken? I guess is maybe a good place to start. Um, okay. Uh,
2: well. Yeah, this is the question uh, people on my committee asked me a fair bit. (laughs) (laughs) Why chicken? But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to research about agriculture in Japan, and um, it's a fun topic for not being considered like traditionally Japanese, even though it has a very rich history there. Um, so for researching about a big agricultural industry that was co- geographically concentrated, chicken emerged as a good a good topic. And kind of like the big themes for my research that emerged over the course of my two years of field research based in Miyazaki Prefecture, which is in uh, southern Kyushu Island, uh, was this, uh, the, the role of social anxiety and social trust um, and how that um, plays out through mm. food chains. Um, and so one of the ways that uh, chicken sashimi really struck me was that people had uh, such high levels of trust in, in um, this the way that it was presented to them that they didn't really question the safety of it. And I include myself uh, in that group of people. At least initially, I wasn't very skeptical. It just kind of seemed like, well, if everyone's doing it, people aren't getting sick, there must be some secret recipe that's making this okay. Hmm.
0: So is that like, and th- th- this is the part I think that, um, that really fascinates me about when, when I get to interact with people outside of our, our like microbiology, heavy food safety discipline, the, that, that, I guess social anxiety piece about, Hey, it's not a, whatever's happening must be fine because we don't have, you know, people aren't getting sick. What like, how do you know and I, I mean, I guess I'll ask this question kind of like personally but also from from your research standpoint how how do people know that like like what you know what would what what becomes the tipping point of people aren't getting sick or people are getting sick so I don't I don't worry about it or I trust in in the system because I think this is really I think important for us in the food safety world to understand more about
2: yeah um that's uh a- Good, really uh, good question. I mean, I I think what I I hear you you getting at is um, like there are dangerous foods, but people don't necessarily recognize them as dangerous. So, like, how how does that shift from kind of like a a fun thing to do to something that it's not worth doing? Yeah. And I think that the, you know, the information that people get about food is really important. And, um, as I, re- I so I, the, the way, the article that I wrote for gastronomica, I think we should link to, um, yep. in this episode. No, that, that's the, the thread I wrote that, um, that got a lot of engagement and and you were tagged in it. That's how we got connected. Um so I uh I just lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> no problem. But we are, we're, and it's and we should note that um we asked you to join us like uh late, somewhat late on a Friday night. Uh Japan time and we're uh we're eating into your wind down uh, you know uh relaxation time. So losing a thread right now is no no big deal. We're we're and, like and we're, we're on
1: East Coast we're on yeah. East Coast time. We're rested, we're caffeinated, we're ready to
0: go full speed yeah. ahead. We're, yeah So yeah, yeah. So what you know I think what we were we we were talking about was like that I don't know that that trust in the system and and where that comes from. You were talking a little bit about the information that people get around food really plays into that. Yeah, test. oh
2: right, right. So um thanks for reminding me of that. Uh so the uh, you know, as I write about in, in the article, um, in Miyazaki Prefecture, there was actually a, a spate of food poisoning incidents from raw chicken, um, which is like so chicken sashimi, um, I guess I should explain there's two main ways of eating raw chicken. Um So the the first way would be kind of like lightly seared on the outside and then uh, cut in thin strips. um, And that's called tataki. And then the other way is pretty much raw and that's sashimi. Um, And the chicken sashimi, um, it's not just breast meat um, or uh, breast tenderloin. Um, but it can also be internal organs, which um, is apparently uh, has a much higher risk of food poisoning. So in Miyazaki, this was this dish was quite popular, and a, a lot of places were serving it. Um, uh, but there wasn't really any regulation, so there's a spate of food poisoning incidents. And because of that, um, officials in Miyazaki Prefecture decided to come up with standards for handling raw chicken, but they can't enforce them as a law. It's more of like a guidance. So they issued a guidance in 2000, then they updated it in 2007. And it seems anecdotally from the, the people who I interviewed as a bunch of uh, in a series of focus groups, that um, kind of older people had more awareness of food poisoning from raw chicken and if someone knew like you know my my friend's cousin got sick with this he was sick for years and then you know the doctors said they think it's because of raw chicken then they would stop eating it and and because it's kind of like this folk practice I think it was kind of um, I also heard many times these stories of people saying like well I ate it and I got sick So I don't eat it anymore. Or I ate um, this one particular kind of raw chicken, like raw gizzard. Um, And then I I got sick. So I stopped eating that, but I can still eat the chicken tataki breast meat. So I'll I'll keep doing it. And one of the things that I think is really, uh, really drew me to this topic is that uh, just the liveliness of the ecologies that people are navigating, and the way that um, there's kind of like, these personal experiences are informing how people make their choices. So I mean, of course, we can think of the world of completely safe food, where everything is regulated, so it's 100% safe. um, But then there is also this kind of gray area of food that people eat and most of the time don't get sick. Um, and kind of like some people are much more likely to get sick than others apparently. And um, yeah, the, the science of it is uh, fascinating but I didn't approach it in the article from a hard science perspective that either of you would have
1: yeah and just just to 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 clarify our our position you you said you know something about regulations and 100% safe and one of the things that i have i continually uh, talked to ben about is that there is no such thing as 100% safe and i think i think he would agree with me on that and then the other thing is I think both of us, both both Ben Chapman and I, agree that regulations also don't make something 100% safe, right? Because there's always the weird one-off. Uh, there's you can have regulations, but people don't follow the regulations, and so the the ph- philosophy that I have tried to promote on this podcast and, and on our other podcast, Risky or Not, is one of shades of risk, right? And so it makes, although people ask me what I do, I say I, I study food safety, um, You know, which implies that I want everything to be 100% safe. But really, if I had more time, I would say I'm a a microbial risk assessor who works with with uh, foodborne pathogens. Right. And so and, and one key distinction. So safety implies, you know, either you're safe or you're not risk, I think, is a much more helpful concept because you can talk about, well, you know, again, it's the, it's sort of the, the, the bit of the premise of the other show, risky or not, right? Or 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 how how I mean, everything is risky, right? Driving a car is risky, uh, walking on the sidewalk is risky. Um, you know, eating food is risky. Uh, not eating food is definitely risky because uh, yep. you'll because you'll starve to death, right? Um, and so uh, there there's but there's but there's shades of risk, right? And so what I think is very helpful is to talk when we're talking about this stuff is to talk about shades of risk. And right now, uh, I just googled. Uh, uh, chicken. Uh, I, f- I forgot now what it is. The, the one, the one that's seared on the outside. Uh, the, uh, uh, you, you said it before, Benjamin. Uh, uh, well,
2: tataki. Tataki. Uh, I, right. th- it's different in different languages too. Right. Like, like right. tartars and. All oh, things. oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah,
1: But see, if but if we when we talk about when we talk about like beef tartar. Um, beef tartare is not seared on the outside, right? And it's, it's, it's basically raw ground beef. But, but again, to, t- to bring it back to risk, chicken tataki Is for me less risky than chicken sashimi because it's seared on the outside, which is where probably most of the pathogens are. And then when you move to organ meat or or other things, especially organs that might concentrate any pathogens that are in the chicken's body, for sure, those are going to be riskier. And so I think, and I I, I think your your research shows, Benjamin, like people do recognize that. And they're like, Yeah, I don't I don't eat the gizzards anymore, but I I do eat the the chicken. Right, and so that I think people people do get the idea that there's it's not just about absolute safety; it's really about about these these shades of gray. And then people are free. And and Ben and I are both you know we're we're advocates of letting people eat what they want. See, our oft often uh, referenced raw milk Amsterdam episode, but the like we we want people to eat what they want, but we also want them to think about and 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 pay attention to risk so that they can make appropriate
0: choices. Yeah, and. and Uh. and I think like when I, when I think about, um, you know, chicken sashimi, what, what you describe Benjamin is really, I, I threw a link into zoom for, for all of us to take a look at, but it's really similar to me to cannibal sandwiches, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast. And it comes up sort of every year, this, you know, something in the, in the U S um, uh, it's especially like, I think Wisconsin and Minnesota are the sort of places where, where you see it. It's, it's like a steak tartare, but it's a, um, you know, the, p- people treat these sandwiches really differently than just going to get g- raw ground beef at the grocery store. So there's like this perception, and I think it leads into this, like, Anxiety and trust, anxiety around food safety and and trust that that you allude to, you know, there's a recognition that not all ground beef, and let me say a perception, that not all ground beef is the same level of risk. So let's go to a butcher, let's have them grind something up specifically for me, for my cannibal sandwiches. And it's, um, you know, it's also known as tiger meat or similar to steak tartar. And, but, but I'm not going to, you know, this isn't just everyday ground meat. This is something specific that I'm going to eat raw. And, and that perception reduces the anxiety. Um, but from a purely microbiological standpoint, and and I, and these, these are kind of, it's, they're analogous, but they're not the same. Um, from you know, the chicken sashimi um, to this, but, but from a microbiological standpoint, that perception is not really reality when it comes to risk. It, it, it would be the, the things that, um, that people are thinking about and putting in, into place may not actually be reducing risk at all, but there's oh, a, a feel of,
1: yeah. Or, or it might, right? Or it might, like like if, or it if, might. If, yes. if you have a butcher that grinds a piece of meat that was not intended. That was not was not beef trim, right? right? Which is tip like like there are differences in risk. The problem is in a lot of cases, like things like that, we don't know. We don't know necessarily what the prevalence of salmonella and uh, E. coli one five seven eight seven is on the outside of let's say beef that is not going into that is not trim right that is not a byproduct of the the slaughter process so what is the prevalence of of pathogens on beef tenderloin right like i don't i don't think we uh, or or sirloin i I don't think we necessarily know the answer to that and so yeah maybe maybe you you're not going to be quote-unquote safe by going to your local butcher but you might it might be less risky so but you know when when i look at the picture there ben um on that cannibal sandwich article that we'll Linked to, uh, I, I see. I see a brand new risk light up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. We'll talk about onions later, but yes. Yeah. Anyway, there's a yeah. there's a picture there of of some red onions which have been linked to an outbreak. But anyway, I digress. Yeah.
0: So Benjamin, I've got a question for you about. Uh, can I, oh yeah, can can I follow up? Absolutely. Um, oh please. Okay.
2: Um. So uh, about um, what Don you were saying, the difference between a hundred percent safe and risk um, analysis. Um, I I am aware of the distinction and I didn't uh, mean to imply that you all are in the 100% safe world or anything. Um, But it is, uh, I think it's really tricky for the general public to make this uh, leap between something that's safe because it's sold Mm -hmm. and like something that's risky. And like how how do you decide what is an acceptable level of risk (laughs) is very tricky.
1: Yes. Yeah, that that is something that even seasoned risk professionals um, do not agree on. And it is impossible, I'll go on record as saying it is impossible to get anybody who is a regulator to commit to deciding what is an acceptable or a tolerable level. We can't even agree whether to call it acceptable or tolerable, right? But we can't get anybody to specify what that number is. And that part of part of what makes my life so enjoyable is, is tweaking the nose of regulators by showing them that they're they have already essentially declared what is an acceptable level of risk based on a, certain policies and by analogy, other policies um, might be equivalent. But, but also, Benjamin, I did not mean to imply that you didn't understand that difference either. I just wanted to make sure that we, we sort of underlined that for, for discussion. So I really, I, really, I really appreciate your response. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for professionals to figure this stuff out. And for sure, it's got to be even harder for what I like to call normal people, <laughs> people right. like my, my, my uh, immediate family members or my, my parents or uh, et cetera, right? Folks that don't do this for a living.
0: Well, and and so this is, I mean, it plays into exactly where I kind of wanted to go to ask you about Benjamin, you mentioned about sort of government guidance, um, you know, in Japan. And in fact, that's exactly how we handle things here in, in the U S so, um, and you know, as you know, you, you're, you know, you, you spent, spent time in Hawaii, you know, obviously you're, you're aware, but, um, the the way that the the federal food code works here in the u.s which is something that don and i work on from a scientific standpoint this is the this is the document that um states and local health authorities adopt at various different levels but you know i'm not i don't want to go into the background of the food code but basically it says look you can buy and, and it's like your, your point is really like interesting to me here to talk about. You can sell food and someone can buy food that is riskier than other food. Just because we sell it doesn't mean that it's not risky. But if it's and, and the food code makes some designations about the types of foods that would fall into this. So it's things like, you know, beef, eggs, fish, lamb, pork, poultry, shellfish served raw or undercooked without any sort of like mitigation step. It's you know in, in almost every place in the US, it's required to disclose this by saying this is raw and it's risky and you've got to remind people and you're making a decision here. And so what I'm what I'm really interested in is is this something that you see similarly in Japan or or is this Discussion around risk not not um, not had in any sort of official way um, in in restaurants.
2: Um. So, uh, yeah, I'm hearing uh, you say that in in the U.S. There's a federal code which is basically says that if shops if if shops or restaurants want to sell riskier food. They need a disclaimer. Yeah. So like and, and, there's like informed consent. For yeah, like
0: sashimi <laughs> would fall into this explicitly. Like I could get chicken sashimi at a restaurant in North Carolina legally. Like, like if as long as there is a disclosure that this is a undercooked food, so it, and and that there's a reminder. How we usually see it is on, depending on the jurisdiction, it's usually on the menu. Um, It may be uh, on a placard that's on the table that says, yeah, these items that we serve are here's a disclosure. These are risky. You will sell them to you. But and it's it doesn't absolve the restaurant of any liability, but it it is a it's a requirement to disclose this information.
2: Yeah, I think the liability point is key because the U.S. is just a much more litigious society than Mm -hmm. Japan. Um, and And uh, I, if there was a place that people are consistently getting food, you know, food poisoning from, I just, uh, you know, I I feel like the lawsuits would be flying. And um, I guess one. uh, Oh, right. So first, let me answer your question. Um, So in Japan, that level of labeling is not required. Some restaurants do it. Um, And for example, Miyazaki Prefecture, the officials do emphasize uh, ways of reducing risk on the restaurant side that I I think are really smart. So like one of the examples is like, don't include raw chicken in a set menu. They have these big parties, end of the year party or something, um, and it'll be like 40, you know, between 30 and $50 uh, where you get a big, you know, a bunch of food. And if there's raw chicken included as a part of it, people who wouldn't otherwise get it would be getting it. Um, so make people order that separately. And in Miyazaki, they also try and get this disclaimer put on it. But, um, you know, there, there is a little bit of liability that they can be shut down for a few days and their reputation can be hurt one of the interesting things that I discovered in the process of doing this research was that like, yeah, I assume like what you described with the cannibal sandwich that like all of this raw chicken was coming from a super special food chain, but some of it isn't. Um, some places are just kind of using industrial meat. Um, and so I, I think that's part of the way that like, uh, chicken tataki might not be as safe as you'd think because you could get away with uh, selling, like, w- with preparing, like, less, you know, like lower quality meat that's more likely to be contaminated doing that. Or you, you know, it could be left around for more days. So, um, one thing that I did um, look through. Um, were these big statistics of food poisoning in Japan. Um, And from that, it really seemed like chicken sashimi was a big source of food poisoning. And anecdotally, I heard from scientists um, and other people that it's like the chicken liver. Like that's the most dangerous thing. Um, And, you know, there are like a few, it's, there wasn't anything that's like consistent enough uh, or like a, a broad enough uh, research paper that I thought it would make sense to include it in the article that I published. But I did see like very small end sample sizes where they'd say that like, yeah, it seems like the the liver has cam- camblobacter more often than these other cuts of meat.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So one thing, and um, I'll, I'll throw a link to this in, you know, Benjamin, one of the things that we, that Don and I talk about, and again, this is kind of like our frame of, of reference in the microbiology world, where the, the incidence of Campylobacter, the, the, let, me, let me sit back. The, I guess the big picture around food safety, there, there are lots of different facets, right? The pathogen has to be there in the first place. And so, what's the incidence of the pathogen being just on raw chicken in general? Then the practices from like that that carcass processing through to preparation in the culinary space—that's a that's that can provide factors, um, either risk factors or risk reduction factors, uh, depending on how that how that food's handled. And then ultimately, and, and what what you just talked about is, well, what are the out, what are the outcomes look like, right? What, what kind of rates per hundred thousand people do we have for campylobacter and, and salmonella? And, and I think the, 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 you know, so you, so you have kind of like this exposure calculation until it's consumed. And then there's an, an outcome calculation at, at the end. And we're, I, you know, d- what what Don and I kind of do and what our colleagues do, it it depends on the food and it depends on the um on on the food system, but we're we're often at the all the stuff before the statistics at the end, right? Like we're we're interested in things like presence absence how much is there how much isn't there? what does the transfer look like? what kind of reduction can you get from cooking or from cleaning and sanitizing or storage or hand washing you know that that's kind of the science that that we focus on and then we have a whole bunch of colleagues in the epidemiological world who who focus on that burden and, and output. Uh, side of things, and one of the things that I think is really interesting in the discussion that we're having today is, is you know, we're we're talking about the presence and absence of pathogens on the incoming to the restaurant, you know, carcasses or or cuts of uh, of poultry, and it's something that's real. And, and this is going to show my naivety about um about the Japanese data sets and, and and what's out there available. At USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service here in the U.S. releases a lot of data on this from their performance standard um, uh, process. So the, you know there the, the, there are um, both there's testing that's happening um, in conjunction with risk reduction practices at you know uh, poultry processing plants and and places where chickens are killed. And 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 that data is is actually available, you know, publicly by um, by plant. And and there's a threshold that says, okay, if you're going to be a plant that supplies in the U.S., you have to be lower than this prevalence. And I won't get too much into the details, but I couldn't find something similar to that when I was looking for it for the the Japanese food system, and probably because it's not. Maybe published in English. Maybe it exists. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't. But I did find a paper that um, that uh, that was published in 2016 that looked at um, you know prevalence and characteristics of Salmonella and Campylobacter in retail poultry meat in Japan. And so this is poultry that was sold for consumer you know use in, in homes. And I would say, looking at this, I'll I'll just read from the from the abstract. 54 and 71 of 100 samples were found to be contaminated with salmonella and campylobacter respectively and i would say that that's somewhat in line with what we would expect here in the US right don like it's it doesn't sound way off it's not it's not a factor of 10 less or or a factor of 10 more than than what we would expect do you agree yeah yes but the other thing too and you mentioned this you know when you
1: said um how much is there and how much isn't there um which i thought was very funny so i wrote that down oh, um cool. <laughs> but uh but the like what's the concentration right yeah. we're learning from our colleagues in the food industry in the, the meat industry like that it it's used to be you know, well, it's, it's a pathogen, it, it shouldn't be there. So all we're gonna do is we're gonna just check for, we're gonna do some tests. The typical tests that we do are presence absence tests. It's a lot harder to enumerate, to figure out how many are there. But it turns out that, that the concentration may actually be driving the risk as much as the prevalence and maybe even more so. And so it's one thing to say, yes, the prevalence matches, But I think what we see is the the outbreaks come or the outbreaks may come when there's a spike in concentration for some reason. But again, we're still learning our way. And and again, there's still a, I think there's a bias against enumeration just because it it costs a lot more. It's a lot more expensive to enumerate than to simply say, is it there or not? Now, obviously if it's not there, there's no point um, in in enumerating because there's nothing there to enumerate. But if it is there, then it does make sense uh, to uh, to enumerate. And there's some ways you can do that. But again, all of this uh, is, it costs money to, to do, right? Either either as fundamental research or as, as you know as baseline research to find out what's out there, also and then in terms of outbreak investigations. Yeah, that's yeah, so, that's all
2: you? really, really fascinating information. Um, and I I guess one of the things that I've been um, thinking about a little bit is uh I, I didn't know um, about these um, reports um, for slaughterhouse contamination levels in the U.S., but it does seem to me that like it's kind of for U.S. consumers who listen to me talk about eating raw chicken, I think it's easy to kind of like scoff at like, oh, how ridiculous people in Japan eating raw chicken and getting sick. But I mean, it's like a a pretty uncommon practice in Japan. And a lot of people in the U.S. are getting sick from campylobacter.
1: Um,
2: And so I think that uh, there are choices that are being made that permit it to persist in high levels. And, And I think in the U.S., the main strategy, one of the main strategies seems to be is to shift all of the responsibility on to consumers, that they have to prepare everything and make sure enough, prepare it like laboratory style and make sure nothing gets contaminated. But it's kind of uh, common sense that if contamination goes up, more people are going to be getting
1: sick. Yeah, and I'll say too, Benjamin, I think that the for a long time the meat industry in the United States took exactly that frame of reference, right? Like, well, you know, we don't have to do anything different because people just need to cook this food. And but yet they were resistant to putting cooking directions on packages. And I think, I think that they have sort of they have sort of come around, at least to some extent, to realize, yeah, you know, if we if we drive prevalence down, if we drive cr- um, uh, concentration down. It's not. It's not just about cooking. It's about cross contamination. And if we drive prevalence down and we drive concentration down, if they have a mistake where they cross contaminate something, the risk is lower because there's just less bacteria there to move around to end up eventually in their in their mouth, either through cross contamination from their hands or cutting board or, or what have you. And so uh, we're not there yet. And I but but I think the industry does realize that they need to. They, they the, 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 let's let's just say my perspective of doing this for for 30 years is I've seen a real change on the part of the industry. Right. Um, again, there and there are still people that insist, well, people just cooked it. It wouldn't be a problem. But but I think that there we have seen we have seen some change. But it sounds like the the perspective of the typical Japanese consumer is maybe in a different and maybe even in the industry as well is, is in a different is in a different spot. Yeah, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, do you, uh, yeah, I'll oh, go ahead.
0: Well, no, I was, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask. Do you think that there is? So, I, I just put a couple of links into into Zoom for us. That um, just this week USDA really, I think, because of pressure from um, a coalition of consumer groups plus really big industry members, have start, has started to put a target on reducing specifically salmonella. Illnesses in poultry, and part of it is is on that front end of well, we need to we need to really systematically look at how we reduce the amount of salmonella is getting through that system that I described before. But at the same sort of time, we Don and I have a a friend and colleague who's been on on this show, um, Bill Marler, who's a, a food safety um, a lawyer in um, in Seattle, but does you know most of the really large Food safety outbreak litigation across the U.S. His law firm it was part of a group that, um, with Stop Foodborne Illness, um, an advocacy group, um, petitioned USDA to actually make like make a, 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 a Salmonella specifically 31 different strains of Salmonella um, uh, adulterants, which which means basically it becomes illegal to sell a, that that meat. Do you know? Benjamin, if the same, like, is that something that is, is being discussed in the same way in Japan on reducing the prevalence um, of salmonella on chicken carcasses or poultry carcasses? Is that like, are we, are, are we having these two, two conversations at, at the same time? Or is, is the, is it, is it not as much of a concern from a, Public or policy standpoint, and, and like you said, the guidance is all about how do we control this this pathogen at restaurants.
2: Um, I unfortunately I can't speak with uh, the same authority. I, I haven't looked um, into this uh, topic about salmonella regulation, and you know if I'm it's. Uh, yeah, it's to, I'm I'm not in that discourse, but what I can share is that raw chicken, or I'm sorry, uh, raw eggs are commonly eaten in Japan. It's kind of like expected that you should be able to have this kind of like raw egg, um, like with rice and some soy sauce. It's kind of like a, a common simple dish. Um, and so uh, there are, I have seen like, settlements uh, like judges deciding against uh, companies if uh, there's like someone who dies from salmonella from a raw egg. so I do have a sense that at least for eggs which were deemed like uh, something that you should be able to eat raw in Japan and it was made a, a priority to to reduce contamination in that that a lot of progress was was made, but I don't think there's uh, comparable progress made in reducing um, like contamination of meat carcasses. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's, I think it's hard to raise um, public awareness. And I've seen these kind of papers being like, if we pay, spent this much more money on the processing you could produce it by this much and this many fewer people would get sick but you know it's kind of hard to implement
0: yeah i i mean i i agree i think this is part of the the issue it's really it's really complicated on how to actually reduce the salmonella and campylobacter regardless of um, regardless of the country it, you know, it, it, it's, and so the, the raw egg discussion is really interesting too, because this is something, you know, again, let's getting into what, what Donna and I spent a lot of time on is sort of gradients of risk. And I think we would both agree that raw eggs based on, you know, that, that chain of, of supply that we talked about and the pathogens that are associated with raw eggs, being contro- potentially being controlled at the flock level or with feed because the salmonella enteritidis is inside um in in many cases the illnesses that we would expect to see here from salmonella that's that's inside the egg but it's it's a much lower um proportion of eggs that that have salmonella enteritidis compared to the amount of um, salmonella or campylobacter on the outside of a cut of chicken. So we're, we're really talking about, you know, and I'll, I'll get the statistics a little bit um, right or wrong here. Don always likes to correct me on this one, but somewhere in between like one in 10,000 and one in 30,000 eggs would have salmonella enteritidis. But so there, so that you, there, there's a, you know, a math you know problem here, right? There's the risk that we would expect from, uh, from eggs, but it's like, you know, three out of four cuts of chicken have um, either Campylobacter or Salmonella, based on the data that that was shared from that Japanese study, but which is really in line with what we would expect to see here in the U.S. So it's like am it's it's really like I don't know what you what what's that Don? like four log magnitude difference on risk? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, four orders of magnitude riskier. So yeah,
0: yeah, and and so I think that's really interesting. You know, in the in from from a outside of our world, right? Like we don't look, I don't look at those two foods equal at all from a risky standpoint, but I think that there is a different perception, um, in, in different, it really like culturally in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. but also individually, I think that, that people would look at, Oh, well, raw eggs and raw chicken equal level of risk or, you know, well, we shouldn't be eating either of them kind of, kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and you
1: know, and people smoke cigarettes and they drive right. motorcycles and you know, <laughs> there's there's all all sorts of behaviors that people undertake that you know that some of us would maybe choose not to undertake. But uh, but yeah, it, it's anyway, it, it's interesting and it's it's good. It's really good to have somebody like Benjamin on the show who can really like. It really sounds like you have you you are really um, enmeshed in the Japanese culture, and that is for for people like Ben and I that are not, and who don't speak Japanese, and don't, and don't have that ability to access the culture, it's, a, it's a, it's wonderful to have somebody like you on the show, because that's what it is that you do, and it's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's great, so, so thanks again for joining us.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, really, really happy to be here. I do, I I have one uh, kind of question I wanted to pose to you guys, um, which is kind of, which is like from in in critical food studies one of the things that um, scholars like to pick up on are these risks that come from food production but don't directly enter the food chain. So things like antimicrobial resistance, um, maybe like uh, what you know water be- or water being contaminated by being close mm-hmm. to factory farms mm-hmm. or, Maybe like greater risk of uh, uh, new diseases emerging. So I'm kind of I I uh, I'm curious how you all approach that.
1: Yeah, well, so there there are people that study antimicrobial um, resistance development and the factors that influence that. A real hot topic right now is uh, you know and has been for several years is you know we have these vegetable Uh, production facilities that are located close to CAFOs. uh, which is uh, controlled animal feeding operation or concentrated animal feeding operation? So basically, essentially stockyards. Although people will probably say that's not the right word, but you have you have a large amount of cattle, including their poop, um, in close proximity to where you're raising vegetables. And the question is, well, you know, how uh, how much control do you have over the water supply, and what's the wind direction, and how much of a role does that play? And that these are all like active areas of, of research, because certainly it's one thing to say, well, I know that that uh, beef may have E. coli, but I don't expect my lettuce to have E. coli, but if you're growing my lettuce in a place where it's close to cattle that have E. coli, well, you you, you know, you, you, the, the the cattle rancher or you, the lettuce uh grower, um, you probably should manage that risk for me because, you know, I can cook my ground beef, but I can't cook my lettuce. And so, um yeah, that's, I mean, these are, these are all areas of specialization within, within people that, you know, within the area of food safety microbiology.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, um you know, as, as Don said, I think there's, there are, others especially in the epidemiological world that are looking at those adjacent risks because of of food production one thing that that I'd add on here is um th- there's some there's been work on sort of uh staff risks so you know we we know in agricultural production that um you know the, the people that are applying um, pesticides or fungicides are, are at risk higher risk than someone who's eating food to, um, to become ill as a result of, of those agrochemicals, because they're, they're handling it day in and day out, right? There's a, just much higher exposure. Similarly, um, you know, there's, there's some work out there that shows that there is higher, um, exposure to campylobacter, sugar toxin producing E. coli, um, you know, chigella, uh, you know, diff- different types of bacterial pathogens, because people are around these, um, these pathogens, especially new employees to um, poultry plants or or meat processing plants. And I think that that, you know, it's not an area. So I guess, Benjamin, it's not really an area that Don and I focus on, but we definitely know that it's, it's part of this, right? Like we are, our role, I, I think where we play is around the food that people consume. And, maybe increasingly over the last 18 months um, we've waded into uh, you know covid transmission within the settings where people are making and consuming food um, mainly because there wasn't uh, we we work really closely with that with the food sector so we we kind of waded into that um, from a microbiological standpoint and from people that that do a lot of risk reduction work but but for the you know for the main, our main job—we really focus on the food and and what what gets to to people, whether it's at a restaurant or or in their in their home. But there are lots of people in the food safety world that are looking at those offshoots. And I'd say that some of the more interesting stuff that I've read in that adjacent field over the last couple of years, five, ten years, is really the impacts of climate change on pathogens and pathogen movement. Um, within the food system, and just like we've seen an increase cases of um, vibrio uh, associated with with seafood over the last ten years, that's probably resulting probably resulting from um, from, from climate change. Um, and so, yeah, so I think you know it's a kind of a roundabout way of answering your question. I think there are people uh, that are doing it. It's just not what we do.
2: Okay, uh, I I appreciate that. I have just uh, a few. Other really uh, the questions that I think are more more to your field, if I can ask them. If Please. That's all right. Oh yeah, you can ask
1: stuff that's not <laughs> in our field too. Those are the more exciting ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um, so when uh, when uh, I'm looking at these statistics and it says that uh, someone is sick, like how sick do you have to be to count as sick?
1: <laughs> oh, this is a great awesome. question. This is good. So, so the CDC, went, went so every year uh, the CDC publishes estimates of how many people they think got sick from what organism, in what context, et cetera, et cetera. And they, th- but they have these uh, estimating factors. And so they'll look at the total number of reported cases and then they'll multiply it by some underreporting factor, right? But but it, but you're absolutely right. So let's say I could get food poisoning, I feel miserable, I I miss work for a couple of days, but I don't go to the doctor. Um, I could I could go to the doctor but the doctor doesn't order a stool sample and he says yeah you got food poisoning you know uh, take here some peptobismol, you know drink plenty of fluids and you know call me if it gets worse um the doctor could order a stool sample or you could get sick enough that you go to the hospital and then and the hospital orders a stool sample and then, and, then the, and then and then and then there's different reporting requirements if you depending upon what state you're located in what geographical which one of the 50 states or, or uh, territories you're located in there are reporting requirements. And so some organisms are reportable in some states and not in other states. And then that gets reported at the state level. And then eventually, at some point, um, you know, you you might get enough Uh, samples. And then, you know, they either get uh, identified by old-fashioned technology like pulse field gel electrophoresis, or they get identified by new technology like near whole genome or sequencing or next generation sequencing. And then eventually you begin to say, hey, look, there's a whole lot of people that seem to be getting sick from salmonella, Let's go and talk to those people and see if we can find out what they've been eating. Um, and you know, turns out um, onions is what they've been eating most recently. But um, but you're but but so the 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 a lot of people we we the general belief Benjamin is that most foodborne disease goes unreported. And so that's why the CDC has those those multiplying factors, those underreporting factors, which they period, periodically do evaluate and they do tweak and they modify. And I, I think because of the advances in next generation sequencing, probably those those multipliers are going down. And so I think we're probably seeing more outbreaks than we might've seen in the past because we're, we, we're getting better at the epidemiology, right? We're getting better at putting the pieces
0: together. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, that's great.
0: Well, and and let me, so can I, uh, let me answer it in a little different way. Um, that's so, what we do on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Benjamin, um, how sick do you need to be to be counted? You could be really sick and not be counted for all the factors that Don said, and you could not be sick at all and be asymptomatic and counted because you have a culture confirmed illness. And and I I'll, I'll give um, I'll give you an example of the of the latter that's personal. I had I had a Campylobacter infection about a decade ago, where who knows where I got sick, um, but but I you know had some terrible diarrheal illness for about a week and a half. And I, I had not gotten over it. So I went and had a, had a stool sample um, uh, done and, and was confirmed. And then I was contacted by researchers um, who were doing campylobacter studies within North Carolina. And they asked for cam- um, stool samples from the rest of my family. And so my son at the time, who was like, Two, had no symptoms whatsoever, but was Campylobacter positive. And both like Campylobacter in, in the US and in lots of other places are reportable disease. So both of us went into the database of confirmed Campylobacter cases. One, me, super sick. Him, zero symptoms, You know, um, but also counted as reportable. So it's, it re- like, it's really complex. And as Dawn said, I, you know, we haven't even talked about the socioeconomic issues, all you know, w- there's a lot of really great data or, or a growing data set in the U.S. about how foodborne illness estimates we we, we really probably underestimate a lot in lower socio economic demographics because of you know private healthcare situations here in the U.S. Like it's really expensive for someone to go to the doctor. Um, and if they don't have insurance, they're probably only going to if they're really, really sick. So this like low, you know, sickness doesn't get counted, but it does in a higher sociodemographic um, bracket. So I and think so we, like, we have
1: pretty yeah. good disease statistics on uh, wealthy white people. Yes. <laughs> and what makes them sick? Yes. Not, not so much other people, maybe.
0: Yeah. So it's a really like your question is really like it's a really big quite like, I I guess we don't know, right? Like I can give you all these examples of what it, you know, and that's why that's, that's why CDC estimates with a factor. They try to take all of those unknowns into account and say, well, here are the confirmed, but we know it's really, really underreported. And these are all of the calculations that we have. So like for Salmonella, I think we stick with something like one in 38 cases are culture confirmed and reported. So, so that's the factor that we multiply it um, here in the U.S. So yeah, law, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's such.
2: No, no, this is great. This is, uh, I, mean, I think that's a really key point you're making about the disparity in the reporting.
1: Around... And, and I, sus- I suspect that the Japanese epidemiologists are doing something similar. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me a bit. If, if there are indeed national, estimates of foodborne disease, which again, you have to differentiate between what are the estimates and what are the actual reported cases. But again, I'm very envious of you because that is all accessible to you because it sounds like you speak and read Japanese. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, um, they do have like, uh, there, there there've been a few estimates. I mean, so, and you know, what's uh, that, I, I, that was the other question I wanted to ask about and in my, paper I tried to work through these statistics and it's uh you know it's pretty tricky to kind of like make sense of it and I kind of I identified this prefecture Shiga prefecture that had like the highest reported the highest number of incidents um by population but I kind of got a sense that the reason they had so many incidents reported is because they were actually doing like a good job and the people in that prefecture weren't like going to the doctor if they got sick from eating raw chicken. So there was more of like a culture of reporting it. So there are these ways that um, places that are doing things well or, or governments or counties or whatever that are really following up on stuff They can end up looking less safe than other places, but actually it's the, yeah. Yeah, we call
1: that the Minnesota effect in the United States. Minnesota has an excellent public health system. And so they always have more, whenever we have these uh, nationwide outbreaks, they always have a lot of cases, not because the food is any riskier there, uh, but because they do a better job. And I still remember to this day, and I mentioned this a lot, and maybe someday I'll see the slide again. uh, There is a... um, uh, a CDC epidemiologist Art Liang who had a slide uh, that he showed once that showed that the the level of foodborne disease in a state essentially correlated with the number of epidemiologists in that state. And so and it was a pretty it was a pretty straightforward linear correlation okay. so the solution, according to that, line would be if you want to eliminate all foodborne disease all you have to do is eliminate all the epidemiologists and then all the reported foodborne <laughs> disease will go away which obviously is the wrong is the wrong solution and so yeah the the prefecture that you mentioned uh, Benjamin it sounds like like I said that I would call that the Minnesota effect uh, but fascinating yeah
2: all right well um I think I'm uh, probably about to go to uh, Take off, but uh, <laughs> let let me know if there if you have any um final things you'd like to ask or mention.
1: Well, let me let me just say so if if you continue working in this area, which I I I just I sort of knew that food studies exist or critical food studies existed, but but I'm I, there's a Wikipedia article about it, so it must be real. Um, and I I I really wish you the best if you ever if we can ever be of service to you um either through connecting you with our limited but but still existent contacts in japan or if we can ever help explain something you know that that might be more towards the food science or the the epidemiology side again we're not epidemiologists but we like to pretend to to be them um let me just say we're we're here we're here to help and and we i just personally i wish you the best in terms of your academic career it's uh it's a great job. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of hard work, but it, to me, I don't think I could do anything else but be an academic. And so, I mean, I really mean that genuinely when, when I said, welcome to the, welcome to the club, it is a, it is a weird, a weird club of people, but, uh, but I'm, 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 I'm envious too of you starting your career in, in such an interesting place as, as Japan and, and doing the kind of cool research that you've done and that you're going to continue to do.
0: Yeah. We, and just, again, thanks for joining us on late on your Friday night. I think it's about 11 o'clock or so your, your time right now. And um, you know, Don and I, there is no place that we'd rather be than talking food safety with each other at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, but it's not, uh, not something that is for everyone. And we just appreciate you, you, you uh, spending your, your time with us and, and talking about this. This was, um, this is exactly the conversation that I, I, I really wanted us to have and, and like I said at the start, just hearing perspectives on food safety for people who are studying it outside of our narrow disciplines of food microbiology can only make it better like can it, it, it helps us reframe our you know the things that we're doing and and just you know we we appreciate your your time and willingness to to join us today benjamin thank you so much
2: oh no thank you this has been uh really a lot of fun and um i appreciate uh the generous offer to to help me out with some of this food science stuff yeah i it's uh it's been really fascinating looking at it, but I see so many connections too with, with other things I'm doing. And uh, I don't know, yeah, I, I guess it was just good fortune, bad fortune, I don't know. Anyways, that I-
1: <laughs> Well, Twitter, <laughs> I <ended> Twitter up... <laughs> is, a weird, is a weird place and no, there's all sorts Twi- of weird Twi- connections.
2: Oh, Twi- Twitter is good uh, for, for meeting you guys, <laughs> but uh, the, that I ended up in a place where they eat a lot of raw chicken. I was a chicken researcher, so it kind of like threw me headfirst into this, uh, this topic.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us and, um, and we'd love to have you on again. Um, so yeah, best best of luck. And we'll talk, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye Benjamin.
2: Yeah. Bye.
0: All right. Well, Don, moving into the hour two here of the safety <laughs> talk. That was cool. That was very nice of him to give up his Friday evening. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would give up my Friday
1: evening for a podcast.
0: Well, you would give it up for me. Oh, 100%. 100%. This Any, anytime. Yeah. But,
1: but I know that your Friday evenings are not filled, filled with podcasting. They're filled with hockey. They are.
0: They're filled with uh, with the-, the or, or
1: probably not hockey, but like driving to the place where there's
0: hockey. Driving to the place where there's hockey, tying my skates, and then uh, also coaching, coaching hockey, which- uh, well, Welcome to, which to the second cool. hour of food safety talk, uh, yeah. hockey talk. Hockey <laughs> talk. Yeah. Hockey safety talk. Also, um, the, we usually do this at the, at the start, but uh, we, we finished, um, season two of Ted Lasso and it's, it, I use like Ted Lasso is it just, I love it. I love it so much. And I know we're like everybody on the internet loves Ted Lasso, but I use There's a the, few people that don't, I don't know. Maybe they, do we really want to associate with them if they don't, no. um, no. The, the um, I use like the Ted Lasso approach with my kids on that. I, <laughs> that I, well, both in my house and the kids that I coach, like like, like, like I tried, we, we had a, um, somewhat, I don't know, somewhat terrible, um, weekend of hockey, uh, just effort wise from one of the teams that I coach. And I, I turned myself, uh, I had a, had a process of turning myself into lead Tasso, um, which is the, where we the the, yeah, I won't, I won't steal too much from Ted Lasso's approaches. Um, instead of having everybody like fight with each other because we don't have a lot of, um, effort or, or people, oh, th- There's mm-hmm. not, you, you you have a common enemy of the coach who is the opposite of who you are. And that was the lead Tasso uh, episode. So I, well, and I, I, I,
1: used- I was also thinking of the letter Kenny hockey
0: coach who takes oh, the
1: trash can. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes.
0: I also, uh, I also try to do that every once in a while. So, um, anyway, that was a lovely discussion with Benjamin. That was cool. Yeah, to, was to have very, good. yeah. very good. Um, so there's, there's two other things that we need to talk about. Yes, um, at least well, two. Three from my pers- two can, two from my point of view, but can I give you 3 one can I do one right now that that's going to be quick? Sure. Um that's not uh canonically food safety uh talk related. Oh yeah, sure. Well, it is. Hey, people out there who are listening, it's almost the holiday season. You need <laughs> gifts. Go ah, to merch uh, merch. Go get our <laughs> go get our merch at food safe food. Wait. Is this the place to do we go to foodsafetytalk.com? Dot- com slash merch. Is that correct? Let's see if um,
1: I'm I probably because I made the both websites yeah. and I don't have very much imagination. Yep.
0: Slash it's merch. There. It'll do it. Slash, but it also we need to update this because it says check back for risky or not t shirts and they exist. Oh, so they you do. Go, My goodness. Yep. So we fix that right now. So food safety talk.com slash merch. You can get um, links to food safety talk 2021 t shirt and the risky or not um, 2021 t-shirt because by the time this posts don will have already fixed it and they're at Cotton but, Bureau. but i
1: do want to let everybody know these are the 2021 shirts yes so you might want to think about getting these shirts in 2021 because here's the thing ben the hint is right there in the name they might not be there when it gets to be
0: 2022 i i would guess that they're not going to be there um, because we're going to have a 2022 t-shirt, but it's not going to come out January 1st, 2022. It's going to be a little bit, we're going to have a gap in shirt availability because you know why Don supply and demand <laughs> can't get them. You, uh, you're going to want them more. So go get them, go get them now. Don't uh, let there be a shirt gap. Yes. Let there be a shirt gap. Also, um, I'm wearing my risky or not t uh, t-shirt right now. I
1: am too. Look at that. Oh, oh right. wait. Oh, I'm wearing, no, no, I'm
0: sorry. I'm wearing my other sh- other shirt. I'm wearing the food safety talk. Oh, good. Good. See, it's our uniform for when we record. Okay. So that was number item. Number one, we needed to, to circle close the loop on that item. Number two. Well, we have two, there are two things we got to talk about. One is a bunch of people getting sick from salmonella linked to onions. And number two is FDA's e-commerce forum. Yes. or whatever, whatever it's called, summit, summit forum.
1: I keep calling it the e-summit, but it's e-summit. e-commerce
0: summit, that's e-commerce, e-summit. e-commerce e-summit. What's the e-summit? I bet you that's, look at that. There's a, you, you, there's an e-summit. It's the flagship event of e-sell and it's uh, held uh, embracing evolution. Uh, so go, go to that. How about that. Yeah, it already happened, it looks like. Um, oh, okay. So mm-hmm. where do you, what do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about uh, Salmonella or e- e-commerce summit? Don't, why don't you, why don't you set up the onion discussion? Oh yeah, I will. So, so we, here's, here's what's up. Um, there had been over the last three weeks or so, some stuff going on about a whole bunch of salmonella that had been linked to nothing. We didn't know, mm-hmm. but we knew that people were getting sick from salmonella and there's a lot of a lot of salmonella that that happens but this was sizable because they were all it, it had a common initially a common pfge pattern but then over time as more isolates were coming in and getting whole genome sequence we knew that it was a common source for whole genome sequencing and um a couple of days ago um so uh, yes ah, Yesterday, I guess what was it? Yesterday, Don? Yesterday or the day before? Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't recently. matter. This week, this cause, week, because yeah, uh, it was linked to whole red, white, and yellow onions imported from the state of Chihuahua, Mexico, and distributed by a company called Pro Source Produce LLC and Keeler Family Farms. They were sold all over the place, restaurants and grocery stores, but they haven't been imported for a while. The last. Um, onions that were imported on August, were on August 31st. But that actually doesn't matter because onions store for a pretty long time. Like I, we've got onions in our pantry that we I buy a bag of yellow onions once a month, once every six weeks. And I, I th- this is, so, so I'll tell you what I did because I am not, I, I look at onions like a commodity. I've got a little basin in my pantry where I will re-add onions when I need them, but I almost never use them all. So I would say, and I, I, so I'm constantly adding more onions to my pantry box. And um, so I don't know when I bought them. I don't know where I bought them from, like realistically, because I, we've talked about this. I like to grocery shop. I go to in any given two week period, I probably go to five different grocery store chains, maybe six. Um, depending on what it is I'm, I'm looking for and where I am. And so, yeah, I, I tossed out all of our onions and bought some new ones. Um, but w- this one's big. Like, Don, we're talking 652 cases, um, 129 hospitalizations, fortunately no deaths, 37 states, uh, recall for all um, uh, uh uh, well, not all, but anything that was shipped between July 1st, 2021 and August 31st, 2021. But essentially, if you don't know where your onions are coming from, CDC messages have been thrown out. Um, or if you do know where your onions came from, take them back to the store and get a refund. Uh, but yeah, this is like a big, this is a big one. Um, and it's like uh, going back on, on the investigation, the first, you know, I'm gonna read back September 17th, there were 127 people infected with um, an outbreak strain of Salmonella or Rainenberg. And, um, and and it was like an unknown source. And then fast forward a month later, it looks like epidemiologically, we found a source and now there's a recall. And But I want to talk through where you and I kind of got tagged in on this. Um, I guess yesterday over the last couple of days has been questions about what to do with onions if I have them. Um, so right. do you have anything to add to the, to the foundational part of the discussion today?
1: No, I, this has been a big puzzle that's going on for a while. It was getting to be bigger and bigger, more and more cases. And we kept waiting for like, the shoe's got to drop, right? Like when you have hundreds of cases, you've got to figure it out eventually. And then finally it did. Uh, there was some originally thought that was cilantro and now we know it's onions. Uh, the, and so, and obviously it's linked to these three different types of onions but my question is it really and i still have some open questions like what did these people eat the discussion you know that i alluded to earlier with the picture on the cannibal sandwiches of the red onions and we and this gets into the twitter discussion well can i cook my onions and of course the answer is of course you can always cook your onions the cdc says not to But if you did, what would you need to do to manage that risk? Uh, We have to mention, Ben, we have to mention, it's in our contract, we have to mention that our our colleague Linda Harris has published research on this. So if you want to disinfect your onions with hot water, she has a paper on how to do that. Um, uh, And I'm making a little bit of fun at her expense, but she'll never listen to this. I think she just downloads the show. It's too long to listen to. She she, she, she doesn't take two hour walks. So, but, but I mean, but yeah, so there's nothing, I think, special about the salmonella. It's going to be killed by heat. But again, in, in a quote, an abundance of caution, although they might not have used that phrase, CDC is saying to don't, don't try to cook these to make these safe. And then that gets into, again, we certainly, we sort of got into this a little bit with a Twitter discussion. It's like, well, so are people getting sick because they're eating onions without cooking them? Or is there a risk? from cooking them. And I had some advice, which I'm, I think I'm still pretty comfortable with giving the advice. Like if you treat the onions like raw chicken and you wash your hands after and use hand sanitizer and or use hand sanitizer, you're probably going to be okay if you saute the onion. So I I mean, that's, that's sort of my immediate uh, brain dump on the topic.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I agree with this. I, you know, one of the things, so a, a few things here. One one thing from that that paper that Linda mentioned, they also looked at soaking in lime juice. Right. And I think that this is an interesting situation. Why would we worry about soaking onions you know, in lime juice? Well, because a lot of raw onions consumed in the U.S. might be consumed in dishes that are of um, Hispanic or Mexican descent, uh, that, like pico de gallo, um, That that Includes lemon juice. And I think that there's a myth out there, or at least a, a mis- per- misconception that if I put it in lime juice, I'm going to change the pH and that would impact the safety of this, uh, of the onion. And it does a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to read something here because I think it's important. Um, it's not in the paper, but she said effective. This is in a text strain. So cite um, when you put this into your Social paper. Yeah, personal communication or uh, food safety talk episode two. whatever this is, 248. Um, Effect of soaking in lime juice. Soaking diced onions in pure lime juice had little effect on populations of all three organisms tested. And that was um, Salmonella E. coli 0157 and Listeria minus cytogenes. After 30 minutes, populations declined by less than a log in each of them and right. it was right. so so don't do that right like if you right. want if you're worried about onion safety you don't know the source of your onions or if you're always worried about onion safety then using hot water and um uh and this was hot water um it's like it's boi- uh, boiling water for 5 seconds or 85 degrees celsius for 10 and 100 to uh, 180 seconds. And that 85 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit for our folks who live south of the border is 185 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really hot water, but that does have an effect on the safety of onions. I would not suggest doing that for the outbreak linked recalled onions. And I want to make a designation here. Um, because I, and then saying, okay, I'm going to drop them, drop this into hot water for 180 seconds at 85 degrees Celsius. Um, because it, I just don't want to like, I I would say if you've got the recalled onions, just don't use them. Um, but I agree with Don, if you don't know whether you have the recalled onions and you want to cook something, treat them like raw chicken, which is a different, more in-depth message than what CDC is putting out there.
1: Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not absolutely not faulting CDC for their messaging here. I think that that's a sensible message. Um, But at the same time, Ben, my job is to answer questions for people. um, And so I'm going to try to do my best to answer them. Even though I did want to, I did in my, in my tweet thread, I did put in the disclaimer that CDC says you should just get rid of
0: them. Right. Well, yeah, but, but I think that, um, we, you know, it's, it's the nuance and that's why we have food safety talk and not risky or not uh, this discussion, right? Like there, there's a bunch of stuff like you alluded to this um, and the Twitter discourse that we have was really interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that you said and someone called you on it and I agree with them was that people don't eat a lot of raw onions and think that, that this is the, you know, I think we, that, that raw onions are consumed probably not at the same rate that cooked onions are. But on top of hot dogs, in pico de gallo, um, so, you know uh, red onion, and I'll read directly from Mogwai um, and Justice, um, I, I think there's a decent amount of raw onions that people eat, red onion in a salad or really any type of onion in pasta, chicken, tuna salad, chopped white onions on a burger or hot dog, onions in cilantro and Mexican and Spanish foods. I think there's a lot. I agree. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that, that was an excellent call out. Yeah. But... But the, the thing that we don't know, and we don't have a whole lot of data on, but we've had some epidemiological links to this in the past is cross-contamination from onions within a kitchen or to other products in a setting. And I think that this is and cleaning and sanitizing of equipment, and whether it's in your home, we're, we're talking about knives, but in food service, cleaning and sanitizing of equipment that is used with raw onions could be... Um, it could be a risk factor for illness here, because we don't look at onions as a as a not ready food, especially if it's going to be diced and cut up from uh, uh, and, and, and consumed raw. So, so I, I think that part of the reason why F- a CDC has this message right now is because of those links um, in the past. So their their message is if you got if you don't know the source of your onion. Or if you have the the outbreak linked recalled onions, you shouldn't cook with them, I I think, or you shouldn't use them, you should throw them out. I think that's, I think there's something, um, something to this. Um, So how long do you need to cook your onions? What, what types of cooked onions are we talking about? Sauteed, caramelized, cooked as part of a a dish. I think those are all like nuances here. I would have no problem using the unidentified onions that I had in my pantry yesterday as a, like we, I use those, I use those onions um, often as a part of a roast chicken, which I might, I might roast a chicken once a week, um, and I'll um, quarter up onions and I stuff the the chicken with that, and I also quarter up lemons and stuff the chicken like both of those, and then I slice the onions and I put it in the roasting pan as a way to elevate the chicken carcass during roasting. I wouldn't have a problem at all using those um, the, the the unknown out um, onions because. I know that they're like, I'm treating them just like I would raw, um, raw chicken. Like I'm essentially making it part of the raw chicken dish and cooking and cooking it. But I, I don't want to leave them in my pantry because someone in my house might go in and grab the onion and then dice it up and put it on a hot dog. Right. Like that, that's yeah. the, that's the problem. That's why I think the message is, is okay. So it's like, yeah, use them, use them and cook them, but, but don't leave them there and make it a guess.
1: Well, and then we also, in that same tweet thread, there is a message from uh, Amy Kirby, who is a microbiologist working to reduce the burden of infectious disease. Um, So you can guess where in Atlanta, Georgia, you might guess where she she works. I don't know. I'm really not sure. But she says, in addition to the raw uses listed above, I bet there are also a lot of undercooked onion use. For example, raw onions added to a casserole or pasta may not get sufficiently cooked. And yeah, and I think Amy makes an excellent point
0: yeah yeah so yeah so this is um this is you know what what happens next right it becomes the i think the interesting part because this is our second big salmonella onion right is that correct we had one last year. yeah there's the second one in my memory so yeah yeah um so and then there was one uh, uh we, we had one in oh yeah was, uh, salmonella newport um, about a year ago, um, that and we talked about it here. This one was again really, really large, twelve, almost twelve hundred people. Wow! All right, I'll, I've, I've rounded up incorrectly. Eleven 1, hundred and twenty-seven people, a little over eleven 1, hundred people ill um, last year. Um, and and so are we? Are we going to be looking at um, you know sources of onions differently? Um, it's not a food that we had seen associated with with, with this pathogen um, historically. There was a really, um, there was an outbreak linked to onions in a Harvey's restaurant, I think in Thunder Bay, just to keep our Canadian content up today, uh, back like in 2006, where um, it appeared that cross-contamination was a risk factor within a restaurant. So so we've seen it before, but I don't know, like here's here's my guess. FDA and we know that there's some people that look, that work for FDA that listen to our podcast. My guess, Don, is that we'll have a sampling um, uh, assignment next year for onions, yep. yep, and and they and that's a good idea, right? FDA is going to look for salmonella, listeria, shigatoxin-producing E. coli in onions, um, and we'll have a better sense of of what they of what they what they find. Yeah. And
1: there was, there was a big um, um, hepatitis A outbreak linked to green onions, which is, which is a different kind of onion. They're more like what I would call chives, although I think they're actually botanically different. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the question is, you know, have, have onion production practices changed? Is this just an example of the epidemiology and whole genome sequencing getting better, linking these things? I, I think I would put my money on that. But the question is, yeah, how much salmonella is out there in onions? And, and the other thing about, uh, I, I didn't, didn't remember that the, the salmonella Newport outbreak was so large, but it really was. And part of it may be just the nature of the onion supply chain right? Yeah. Like these things are in the market for a long time. And so, um, you know, they, the, and the outbreak obviously just sort of goes on and on and on until, until they link it. So, and I think we're going to see, <clears throat> we're going to probably see epidemiologists, like maybe think onions sooner rather than later now with these, with these outbreaks, right? Uh, because yeah, it, absolutely. they're being conditioned to, to look for it now. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what the world of onion, uh, onion food safety holds um, in the next in the next couple of years. And of course, it's going to inspire people like Linda Harris to go out and, and do more research on you know, behavior of salmonella in, in onions and, and mitigation, risk mitigation measures and, and all of that good stuff.
0: Yeah, and and just to close the loop on sampling assignments, there was, um, since we talked, um, FDA released a a report of uh, a sampling for earlier this year, uh, sample collection analysis for romaine lettuce, obtained at commercial coolers in Yuma, Arizona. And so, uh, you know, when we started doing food safety talk, USDA Agriculture Marketing Service had a microbiological data program, I think it was called, where they would do just um, somewhat random sampling of fresh produce, and that program evaporated. But FDA has really picked up on this over the last seven or eight years, and and I, you know, so so they've done a good job. I mean, there. Let me let me say um, a couple of things. I think there are definitely folks within the academic world and the industry that have that have taken issue with how FDA has approached this. And that's a discussion for another time, but I will say that FDA has done a really good job at, re- at reporting on what they find in these sample, um, programs. And so they released a, um, an update on October 7th, um, from the 2021 sampling in Yuma. And, uh, you know, they, they sampled in February and March of 2021 and out of, uh, what was the number here? couple few hundred I think um not illnesses few hundred samples they found zero um uh um why wouldn't where why is that not in the uh 500 500 samples um uh, and they tested 504 uh I guess uh of of 300 grams of romaine lettuce uh, found no uh pathogens um in in that but they did find one where is this one E. coli? Oh yeah, um, one E. coli o 130 H11, um, but uh, but it was not linked to any human illness. So no no Salmonella. Uh, one just one Aztec, but not linked to the to any illnesses. So anyway, the, the, what I'm saying is, FDA is doing a much better job at reporting this stuff in a pretty timely manner once they have data uh, on it. Well, so, and I guess the question would be. <clears throat> I, mean, I would like more information. <clears throat>
1: Maybe it's there. Or did they sample over the entire production season in Yuma? I guess they probably. I mean, they probably did. They probably did. You know, did it in a good way. But anyway, can you send me a link to that?
0: I can't. As I found the announcement of the sampling plan, I didn't find the results. Yep, I think I did already send it to you. Oh, okay. But but I'll, I've re I've resent it. Oh wait,
1: I'm looking. I'm looking. Sorry, I'm looking in the the Zoom chat instead of. Oh yeah, we the, don't. Uh, yeah, in the yeah we, we're we're
0: sorry we're not there anymore. It? Yep um so yeah so that's onions so let's let's talk about the fda uh e-commerce um uh summit uh that that was held this this week it was um so how much I, of it did you go to i want to ask yeah like uh I, I had it on in the background for about three hours total i would listen to um, five or six talks pretty intently. And then it was kind of there. Um, sometimes I had it on closed captioning and sometimes I didn't. Uh, but it, it was, it, you know, I, let, let me give you my my initial thought here. Um, this is one of the first times I can remember where FDA has taken an emerging issue like this and said, we're going to put on a public event and we're going to do it on the internet so it's really accessible to people that do not want to go to to DC and that I'm sure was was influenced by covid in the middle of a pandemic but mm-hmm. I really appreciate the ability to j- jump in and jump out on YouTube uh with links you know I I registered for it but I got YouTube links and I could watch whenever I wanted And they were recorded, so I could go back and see the ones that I missed um, in in somewhat real time. Uh, I thought it was really, I thought that was really good. I, 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 um, you know, well, what, you know, I I didn't get a chance to see your your panel on this, but, um, but yeah, what was your what was your takeaway from it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was it was, it's FDA, right? And so it's by equal measures. Infuriating, bureaucratic, and slow-paced. And then, at the on the other hand, it is uh, they did a really good job, right? They did a really a really good job. Um, they they if anybody listened to that and does not understand that FDA really wants public comment, I'd have to say you weren't paying attention. Yeah. At, at every opportunity. To the point of annoyance. I mean, honestly, but that's just me. I'm just I'm just thin-skinned that way. Um, uh, they they kept saying that we really want your written com- we really want your written comments. So, pr- really, really write to us. And they they also the other thing that they said was we will something we we will or will not uh, take action. <laughs> something about um, you know when as we make plans to regulate or not regulate. And so, obviously, they are still in a very deliberative mode as to whether they should do something or not. Um, you know, all of the usual suspects, right? All of the talking heads. Uh, Frank Giannis on the first day, of course. Um, some really highly well-produced. Uh, Phil, you know, Phil Lempert, who was the spe- feature speaker on the first day, really slickly produced, but but good, good, good talk. Um, good panel discussions. I, I did, unfortunately I had a conflict the first day and I had to miss uh, the comments from my colleague, Bill Hallman. Um, uh, But I could go back and watch it later, which was really nice. I would mention, I think there were only two academics that were part of this and both from Rutgers University, which Uh was a little bit weird. Um, But of course, Bill, you know, was, was a leader in the research in this area. And then i you know, was part of his project and then also led the conference for food protection efforts. Um, again, really good, uh, you know, really good, uh, public comment where they, where they had people. And again, the public comment is always, it's like the same public comment that you would get at a meeting where it's like the, the guy with the new, Technology that's going to solve all your problems wants to spend two minutes telling everybody about your tech, his technology that's going to solve all of our problems. But so there's a little bit of commercial messaging. There were also some other really, really good really good comments. Um, I really, uh, I really enjoyed, uh, comments from, uh, Sandy Eskin from who's now, you know, formerly a Pew and now with, uh, FSIS. Um, you know, she's just a really smart, smart lady, um, who, 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 <laughs> with a very good sense of humor, who, who said, I, I get, I get to ask a lot of questions and I don't have to give you any answers today. Um, which was great. Um, you know, I think that people, the people that they got to be on the panels were quite good. I was really, I was really, I mean, and Steve Mandernak, uh, we we know, we know Steve and he's, he's great. But I also, the woman that was on the panel with Steve and I, Palak, uh, Raval Nelson, she was great, boy, what a, what a dynamo. And that's a person that I did not know before this conference. And, and she's a, she's a, you know, she's a contact to for, for my Rolodex, for sure. She works for Philadelphia Department of Health and was there nominally to represent Meeha, although really just talking about the work that she's done there um, with respect to e-commerce. Um, Catherine Feeney, who, you know, I always enjoy what Catherine has to say, in part because she has a lovely accent, but also because she's really smart and they can do some really cool stuff in Rhode Island just because of the geography of the state. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was... I don't want to say I was disappointed with the FDA USDA perspectives. I think Gervin did a really good job with his talk. And, and I mean, all of the talks were really good. I, I wish there was more substance, but on the other hand, and I, also, I really wanted to hear from a lawyer, right? Like mm. a key question that I wish I had, we have been able to press the FDA, but again, FDA was there to listen. They were not there to instruct. Right. But I would have really liked to have heard from lawyers who can talk about like, legally what can fda do right i mean short right. of short of congress passing new laws within their current regulatory authority what can they do and if they if they answered that question it was not answered in a very direct way and again i'd have to go back through uh, listen to you know folks from ora listen to what gervin said carefully and see if there was any hints as to what could be done, but I didn't, I didn't really hear a lot. And then the last day was really interesting because, and again, it was, uh, you know, the people talking about the international perspective and the first, the, the, you know, when you do these things, Ben, you have to have your, your figureheads, your high muckety mucks, uh, your grand poobahs. Um, and that's all fine, but I really want to get down to the people that are actually doing stuff. And so I, they had a wonderful speaker from Japan. Another wonderful speaker from Brazil. Neither of them gave their remarks in English, uh, but they did have. Uh, they and every every almost everybody had uh, written remarks, right? I mean, I was uh, Palak and I were and Steve were somewhat unusual in that we were a panel and we did not really have written remarks. And there there were there were other folks that that went off the cuff occasionally as well, but, but I mean, really, I did, I really would rather not have written remarks, but in the case of Japan and Brazil, it was good. I would have really rather just had a transcript to read because I was trying to multitask and I can listen to English in the background while I do something else. Can't, I mean, I can listen to Japanese or Portuguese, but it doesn't, doesn't process. And so, and they had some really good slides. Uh, And then they had a woman from uh, Wales and a guy from Germany. Um, And then I, there was somebody there was somebody supposed to be on that panel from canada but i don't remember them speaking so they might not have they might not have been there but again the woman from wales and the and the the, the fellow from germany gave their remarks in in english uh, no subtitles for either one of them um and uh and that i'm i'm really impressed with what what they're doing in japan and in brazil and in the uk and in germany with respect to e-commerce right they really uh they really do seem to have a much tighter Grasp on it than, than what we do, but maybe that's also my perspective. Maybe it really is the wild west in those places as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really. I mean, the whole thing was really good. It was not. It was not a waste of time. I did. I did block. I did. Did use the excuse of attending the the the, the summit um, to not to not do other things. And for the most part, I did listen to the whole thing. I was maybe doing other things in the background. But, uh, but yeah, all, all in all, I, I think a, a good effort. And like you said, it's all captured. Uh, it's captured on YouTube and so we can watch it. I will say I did learn uh, that I have a new least favorite platform mm. um, and that is Adobe Connect. Yes. Which, um, you know, Steve Jobs had some thoughts on Flash uh, and uh, pretty much was able to make Flash go away on the web. I will say, uh, flash lives on to this day inside Adobe Connect and so Ugh. it is uh, it is a, an execrable experience um, and I said as much uh, to somebody from FDA except I might have used stronger language and uh, he was not my friend after that but uh, but it's okay uh, you know so I made another enemy at FDA but
0: it's fine well and and so I'll, I'm gonna give um, three three hot takes on this mm-hmm. um, uh this is gonna sound terrible. My first hot take, uh, audio matters. And um, I, I understand that not everybody has um, the uh, good ability to have um, audio connectivity that is digital. So, so FDA used like phone connection, right? Through Adobe Connect. And that sounded terrible. It, well, it, but let me let me yeah. say, Ben, it
1: was very helpful when Steve Mandernack's internet crashed, I, I, and he I, could still be there, right? I and agree. So, I mean, I'm 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 speaking on behalf of people from FDA that I don't agree with, but there's there was a reason why, and that is because phone lines are. Um, can be indestructible when it comes to maintaining connections, but and you could you could tell too. You could tell the folks that had pre-recorded stuff. Yep. Um, the the, the audio quality was much better because guess what? They didn't have to use a phone line.
0: Yep. And and so so I'm, I'll make a suggestion and something that I'll employ with this phones backup. Right. Yeah. That you know when when something crashes now here's a phone line to call into, yep. to to continue continue on because listening to, um you know four or five hours of telephone presentations of the audio <laughs> yeah with low quality audio is it, it takes away from the message it it absolutely does um so that that was that was number one number no, number two I thought that there was some there was um especially. On day one, um, there was a session, the first session, that uh, industry perspectives on e-commerce. Um, I'll, I'll highlight a few that I thought were really interesting. Um, Jorge Hernandez from Wendy's, Carletta Uten oh. from Amazon. Yeah. Jorge hit it out of the park. I mean, yeah. At that point, once
1: he started speaking, I was like, okay, this is not going to suck. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because he he gets it, right? Like he gets it. He didn't read his remarks. He had he was. I mean, I mean, with all due respect to my colleagues at the largest food company in the world, um, I don't want to hear about HACCP and hurdle technology. I especially don't want to hear about the history of HACCP. Okay, that's
0: not that relevant. But but yeah, Jorge absolutely hit it out of the park. Jorge Jorge nailed it. And and I'll say that um, one one of the things that I I found really, really interesting from um, uh, Carlotta Carlotta Utens was just the AI approach. And that was like just things and modeling that that it's being applied right across so many different companies. It was the first place that I had seen it, but it was really more in depth. They shared more than I thought that they would. Um, And I thought that was really, I thought it was really interesting. Um, yeah. And
1: I, I'll, I'll say, I mean, Amazon gets this stuff. Yeah. They know, they know how to do this and they really, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're,
0: they're doing a good job. So one thing that I thought was missing, so there's my, there's hot take number two. One thing that I thought was missing and it might've come up. And like I said, I didn't, I didn't hear your panel um, on. on it is, on YouTube, ben. It is yeah, on YouTube, man. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. I've, and then the one that was before the, that Lori Farm, Farmer, you um, uh, uh moderated I will I'll go back and listen to it but this was the local perspectives did anybody talk about Facebook marketplace did it come up
1: facebook was mentioned I don't know and and again this is another great thing about the having the resources of FDA the entire transcript yeah will be available uh, slower than I would have liked but will be available. And so you can do a search in the transcript for Facebook Marketplace. And so there was discussion of these digital platforms. And, and I'm told my joke that I, or my, my comment that I tell every time when, when the, the Conference for Food Protection Committee was meeting, I asked one of the local regulators how they found people that were doing this. And her answer was, "quote We go on Facebook." Right, right, yeah. And so, so that is, and I would like to hear. I would really like to hear a lot more. And this, and, and I'm gonna, I've asked Pollock to come and talk to the New Jersey affiliate about this. Like, how does, how did Philadelphia do this? How did they regulate? Right? How did they find um, these uh, dark kitchens? Right? Uh, is that what they're they called dark kitchens? Right. Well, they're Eagle ghost kitchens. kitchens ki- ghost kitchens. Ghost
0: kitchens. Yeah. Dark. Yeah. This is from the dark, other side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kitchens in the underground, um, the um, upside down. But,
1: but, but I, but I, I mean, cause I mean, something's going to happen. And, and again, I think the guy from Germany talked about this. Like how did we, they, they have also, here's a very cool thing about what they, do, what they do in Germany. They have. Oh I forget what they call them it's like like prefectures are states in the United in Japan are states and the Germany has their whatever bailiwicks or whatever whatever they're called in Germany I'll find it in a minute but but basically they decided that they needed uh, an overall group that would just do internet stuff right. right they didn't want each one of these little entities these counties or states to use the american parlance to be doing this they wanted some uber entity that would that, that knew how to like do internet search right and so they they, they standardized that at the federal level within germany And then, of course, there's still the boots on the ground people out there doing this stuff. But you didn't you don't have local regulators, quote, going on Facebook anymore. Right. You have somebody at the state level, at at the at the at the the federal level in Germany doing that to direct the state, the the
0: local people. Well, and that so I thought that's what was missing. Right. Um, So so that that. I would love to see a panel of what's Facebook doing and how they interact if anything at all. Oh. Right. And, 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 how they interact. And I think they're changing their name apparently. Right. To. Are they? Book, yeah. Didn't you see that book? No. They're going to be something else. Facebook, I, book, this, face? book, face, fart book, <laughs> um, what, whatever, uh, face. Yeah. Facebook. This is from, uh, the verge.com, which is where I get all my technology news. Um, the uh it's coming your way right now the the headline is facebook is planning to rebrand the company with a new name anyway whatever their new name in the metaverse is going to be uh what are they doing if anything right like how do they vet And, and and i think the answer is they don't but but they're part of it right they are the they are the the way that people are sharing information um about how to get food i'm sure TikTok is a place that i could go buy food too um, if I oh, really- I did. I did
1: mention TikTok. I got some laughs with my with some comments about TikTok. So TikTok.
0: Um, but anyway, so those those were my hot takes. I thought it was really it's a really great starting point for this. And it, and I, I applaud FDA for all the like stuff that I said. Of here are the things that I think you should fix. Just having this meeting and wanting public comments is really important. And and uh, recognizing this is a a place where people are going for food and we don't have our hands around how to manage it and what to do. Um, and, and that, that the companies out there want need e-commerce and need to ship stuff to, to expand their markets. And there's, it's, it's just a, it's an area that we have to stay on top of. So, um, can I I offer a hot take on Facebook's name change? Oh yeah, please do. I bet, I bet they change
1: it and then they change it back.
0: (laughs) like like new coke like new coke yep good call yep absolutely um hey so i got a i got a hard, hard yeah yep. yes. let's let's let, i think that's a show i think it's a show um and this was cool really great having benjamin on yes. to join us earlier so good uh and uh yeah all right so this is where we awkwardly say goodbye to each other bye, bye.
1: Do this quick. Cool. You got a heart
0: out. Do I do? Um, let us look at um okay, hang on a sec.
2: How about
0: How does Wednesday the third in the afternoon look to you?
1: Wednesday the third, I have AMP Canvas. I don't know what that. I, I do know what that is. That's, I'm holding that. Um, I have a I have a nutrition graduate program meeting, which I kind of like to go to, but I don't have to go to. What
0: time's that? Um, huh? What time is that?
1: Oh, 2.15 uh, to 3.30, but I could what time, what time works for you for the
0: afternoon? So, and actually I could do the more, you know what? I could do the morning too. I could do, I, there's a seminar that I want to go to at noon, but oh, cool. I, I have, yeah, I've got, I, I basically, other than that, I have nothing. So we could oh, you do, do nine or 10. Yeah. Nine or 10 is good. Uh, so which is it? <laughs> um, Let's do nine. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, 249. Perfect. All right. That's it. We did it. We did it. That's okay. A show. That's the show. That was good. Ding 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 ding. Oh, I have my belt. There we go. I, I got my bell back. Uh all right. Cool. I will talk to you. I think we got uh risky or not next week. Is that true? I think we
1: do. I think
0: we do. Yep. There it is. Next Thursday afternoon. Cool. All right. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
1: Bye.